Okay, which you meant to start. Um, I'm Mike Savage. I'm very really pleased to be able to introduce Roberto uh, and Roberto and I go back quite a few years. Um, about ten years ago, I was head of the department at Manchester and he was head of the department at Reading. We had lots of discussions about effective strategies for developing our department. Um, it's based on the spectrum we have back here, the LSE. Um, he's extremely well known for his very innovative work trying to straddle issues of text and measurement, um, trying to question boundaries between quantitative and qualitative methods, pursuing uh, very innovative paths, including very substantive analyses of various forms of protests, but also um, methodological and theoretical debates about narrative, text and measurement. Uh, two very well-known books, which many of you will be familiar with, Puzzle of Strikes, and from words to numbers, uh, he's currently working on further important books in the area. He's currently professor of sociology and linguistics at Emory University. So, very pleased to welcome him. He'll talk about 45 minutes, and then we'll be time for discussion when we finish. Thank you, Mike. Yes, it's a great pleasure. I assume you are applauding for Mike, because uh, I, I would caution you to wait to applaud me. But. <laughs> Um, yes, it is a pleasure to be here. It's the first time in the sociology department, although, as you will see, I have been at the LSE uh, many times through my good friend uh, Martin Bauer, who has invited me several times. Um, and speaking of Martin Bauer, in fact, um, some, I am going to talk about a long journey from words to numbers, basically, um, but uh, it is last year that it came to a uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, that I got some of the ideas that I will display today. Um, it was at the uh, Text Mining uh, Methods Conference organized uh, by Martin. It was the second time that he invited me to this conference at the LSE, and it was a conference of validating evidence. <coughs> and at that conference, uh, a professor of computer science at Bristol, Nello Cristianini, started out by saying that in order for him to do textual analysis of the type that I will talk about today, uh, he needed millions of words in the computer. And that truly struck me. Because in 1989, when I was an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, some of my colleagues were asking, what is Franzosi going to do with thousands of words in the computer? And not finding an answer to that question, I didn't, uh, get, uh, I didn't get tenure. I spent two years on unemployment. For, for all of the young faces that I see here, uh, if you get a brilliant idea to work on something innovative, think about it twice. And, uh, and if you still want to continue packing a lot of luck and among the lucky strike is plan to live a long time. Had I died 10 years ago, that question, or that, that question would have remained unanswered. What's Francesi going to do with thousands of If I die today, well, I'm, I'm close, as you will see. Um, so, what was the problem? The problem was that after my uh, PhD at Johns Hopkins, and I had been working on strikes, I came to the conclusion that, was, that there was more to strikes than regression, spectral, <coughs> econometric coefficient. 
but throughout my graduate work at Hopkins, all I had done was mathematics and statistics. I had done nothing else but, but that. And so it was an unfortunate conclusion to come after all that training. And it is a year of postdoc. I was a postdoc at the University of Michigan with Charles Tilly. A lot of people at Michigan were using newspapers as sources of data to study conflict. And I thought, okay, I could do the same, but I'm happy with the content analysis approach that they were using. There was Gamson, Tilly, uh, Page, uh, the graduate student. And I thought, well, I can do much better than that. I can crack this problem in no time. And, uh, you know, given my intellectual arrogance and, and, and lack of realism, and 30 years later, I'm still trying to solve that puzzle. So, what was at stake there? All right. So, I was looking at newspaper stories to get what actors do, right? I had come to the conclusion that in uh, strikes, there were social actors that had disappeared behind coefficient. There were workers, unions, employers. And I thought that newspaper stories were providing the kind of information that I needed. So what is a story? A story tells us something about social actors doing things. They do things at specific times and locations. So think about the typical way that stories children's stories or folk stories start once upon a time and sometimes once upon a time in a faraway land, right? And they do these things sequentially, one after the other. For the ones of you who have small children or uh, grandchildren or little brothers and sisters, depending upon your age, the, you may know that little children up until the age of three probably tell the stories in and then, and then, and then, right? Sequentially. That definition remains in the definitions of narrative as story. And the distinction is between story and plot. The story sequentially organizes information and then, and then, and then, while the plot mixes up that information in ways that are rhetorically appealing. You know, you grab the reader. So Hitchcock starts from the scene of the murder and then mixes it up and goes back and forth and whatnot, okay? So, in the 1980s, I then started working on this idea of organizing information in a story, not along the textual element of content analysis, but through this idea of a story grammar. I call it the basic element of this story grammar is the semantic triplet, these three things, subject, verb, and possibly object, depending upon the transitivity of the verb. And for the subject and the verb, you have what I call modifiers or attributes. And the fundamental attributes of a narrative unit of this kind is time and space. Those are the fundamental categories of narrative. All right, so I have written a couple of books uh, on the topic and uh, several articles. The, the green book is the ones that uh, all, the, the, that series, not my particular book, but that series is the one that all graduate students throughout the world are forced to uh, suffer through, you know. So you, you, you may end up with mine as well. But uh, the, the, this book is more epistemological simply because I didn't have enough data at the time. 
while the second one is more technical as appropriate for the series. Um, the bane of my life has been the computer software to do this type of stuff. If I had had back then in the 1980s this software, uh, you know, I probably would have gotten tenure, but uh, such is life, I didn't have that software. The computer came as a bunch as a box with a bunch of wires inside and no software, basically. Um, so, I use PCAs, Program for Computer Assisted Coding Audio Events, for two projects. One on the rise of Italian fascism, 1919-1922, and the other one, lynchings in Georgia, 1875-1930. You may ask yourself, why is this guy starting working on strikes? That's my first my dissertation and my book, The Puzzle of Strike, um, then moved on to study conflict and violence, rise of Italian fascism, to end up in violence. Um, yeah, you may wonder what my childhood was like. But 1919-1922, um, the fascism project, just to give you a sense of what it's all about, look, uh, these are the number of strikes between 1879 and 1921. So you can see this spike in working class conflict at the uh, right after World War I. That was typical of uh, most countries. Uh, but when you go inside the 1919-1922 period, where did it go? Oh. Uh, you can see that there is a, a, a difference between the first two years of working class mobilization and the second two years of uh, fascist counter-mobilization, although you don't see it from this graph. Uh, the first two years are called the Red Years by historians of Italian fascism, uh, and the second two years are called the Black Years. Uh, the Red Years come from the colors of uh, working class mobilization, socialist and communist, and the next two years from the shirts, from the color of the shirts that the Italian fascists wore uh, the Nazis had brown shirts and the Italian black shirts. Uh, to give you a sense of uh, the project on lynchings, okay, the red line gives you the plot of lynchings in 10 southern states, and the black line gives you the plot of lynchings in Georgia. You can see the difference. Lynching peaked at the end of the 1800s um, across the U.S. South, but in Georgia, they remained at a very high level throughout the period when they started declining. <coughs> they sort of disappeared in the 1930s, although there are still lynchings in the 50s. Um, Georgia is the second highest lynching-prone state, second to Mississippi, but only by four cases. So I don't know whether you know what lynchings are, because when I ask... Uh, People, if they, uh, know they know what lynchings are outside the United States, they, that oftentimes they think, oh, they gave a good beating to somebody. Uh, well, no, the typical mode of lynching was to hang someone, mostly an African-American, to a tree and riddling his body with bullets. So, for a number of violations, uh, okay. So, it, it was, uh, and after 1900, Lynchings in Georgia became more and more gruesome, cutting them alive, uh, cutting their peanuts and make them eat it, uh, burning them alive, and so it, it was pretty gruesome. Sources of data. For the rise of Italian fascism, it's three newspapers. 
two socialist papers. One is the official newspaper of the Italian Socialist Party, and the third one is a fascist paper, the official newspaper of the fascist party, Popolo d'Italia. Mussolini was the editor of both papers at different times, though. Uh, but he started out as a socialist, he ended up as uh, a fascist, and, and editing both papers. The number of newspaper articles that we coded in the detail of the subject, action, object, and that PCAs doesn't do anything automatically. Nello Cristianini, the professor of computer science at uh, Bristol, is trying to automate that uh, very process. Um, so over 50,000 newspaper articles for 250,000 triplets, that is, um, narrative units. You can see that you need a lot of money to do that. So among the things that you need, aside from luck, is the luck to get money. Um, the lynching project is a different kind of project, as you can see. It's a lot of newspapers, 217. Now we have brought them up to some thousand newspapers. Uh, the number of newspaper articles is 300 and, uh, 1,332, and again, we are now several thousand more. But... The number of lynching events is not very high, 476, um, and 7,000 triplets. Again, you see money, and uh, in particular, this professor, Woody Beck, at uh, the University of Georgia, who gave me the links uh, between events and newspaper articles. So, uh, really, okay, so uh, very generous. Um, my data. You can see why my colleagues, or at least some colleagues at the University of Wisconsin, would ask the question, what's Francis going to do with thousands of words in the computer? In black are the categories of a very complex uh, story grammar, pages and pages and pages <coughs> of story grammar. In red are the things that you extract from newspapers. So if you read the stuff in red, it reads like a story. Fascists arrive in, on 5-7-1921 in the town of Bisone di Santa Cristina, in the pub owned by Mr. Prati. The fascists seize five workers, and the fascists take the five workers outside, and they beat them up with retorted cowhide with lead inside. Um, that, so what are you going to do with this stuff? I mean, in the 1980s, data were numbers, right? The very word datum in Latin means given, right? Something that you don't question. And... Words are always questionable. Um, you know, I don't know whether you know the, the, the saying of one great econometrician, Lemur, Edward Lemur, who said there are two things you don't want to see in the making, sausages and econometric estimates. And I say there are three things you don't want to see in the making, sausages, econometric estimates, and content analysis, even in the form of quantitative narrative analysis, right? This technique that I developed to study this stuff. Um, but what can you do with this data? Okay, given you can count and you can get frequency distribution of things, you can use those numbers in logistic models and econometric models, and I've shown that you can do that. But what I was interested in is to use techniques that would be isomorphic with the properties of narrative. That is, I wanted to use techniques that mapped onto the properties of narrative. So, what is narrative all about? I just said it before. Actors related to other actors via their actions. What can you use? Network models do precisely that, as you will see. 
It's actors acting in time and space. What can you use? GIS, Geographic Information System Tools. Actors acting in ritualized prescribed sequences, and then, and then, and then. Then you can use sequence analysis. Notice that in the 1980s, these techniques, well, GIS was completely foreign to sociological thinking. You know, if you read Massey on space, he will say, you know, uh, uh, network models were just starting then, uh, you know, being developed. So the question, what Francis is going to do with thousand words in a computer, was fair. Um, well, in 2012, that is last year, I gave a series of workshops on Q&A, including at the uh, LSE, but Cardiff, Kafoskari, Humboldt, Istanbul, I mean, and at the end of that period, aside from having gained 15 pounds, um, I, it finally dawned on me that those who know words do not know numbers, and those who know numbers do not know words. And as I was listening to Cristianini, because I had already heard him giving his talk, except that he hadn't said, I need millions of words in the computer, but this was about validation, so that he made that, uh, that statement. Um, I said, at the, at the conference organized by Martin, there were people who were doing very qualitative work using Atlas TI or Max QDA. Then there were Christianini who needed millions of words in the computer. And I said, if I don't uh, automate the process of data analysis, most people will not know what to do. The people who approach narrative analysis are people who are qualitative. They don't know GIS and network models and, and vice versa. So... While Nello was speaking, I started programming. And uh, how do you analyze words? What, what did I do? Well, I built into PCAs a series of things that you can do automatically. You do a query, that is, you extract the information from the database, and then you analyze automatically that information. So, all of that. Uh, Okay, so let's move on to PCAs for a second and see what you can do. I'm going to show you some of the uh, GIS modeling for both Georgia and uh, so Google Earth lynching. So I run an SQL query. I extract information uh, from the database. Obviously, newspapers don't give you latitude and longitude. I, I, it has to be brought in, and now I extract from the database just the latitude and longitude. We run that. Uh, so I have extracted that information. I go into GIS, and I say, okay, I want to use Google Earth. It recognizes that there is a date, and it asks you, do you want the time slide? Okay. Yes. I'll show you what it does. Okay. Now, the program is computing um, the KML file, the keyhole markup language. I was very lucky that this geographer, famous geographer, um, uh, helped me out. 
to, to do this. I mean, that's the difficulty in doing this kind of stuff is that the techniques are so completely different that, and, and getting the kind of help that you need. It's, it's, the computation are finished, but now it's trying to go on the web um, to go to Google Earth, and I'm going via Wi-Fi, so it may take... It normally takes a little time, but this is taking... Oh dear, yes, it's taking too long because it's not connected to the... Mm. not connected to the internet. I see. If it has me... just not um, they told me that there was a, um, a cable for hardwiring is there uh, because it, the, the Wi-Fi probably doesn't work <coughs> I have the same problem they told me that sometimes in some places the Wi-Fi doesn't work yeah it is connected Yeah, it is connected. It, that's the one that it should be on. Because um, it asks you for password and stuff, but this, sometimes they told me it doesn't work. Ah, no, that would not accept me. No, no. No, what happened is probably it brought up the Google ID. There should be attached to a computer there. There should be a hard wire that we can disconnect and put it if we can. Huh? It's connected to the other one. Well, in the meantime, I do something else. Uh, if we can solve the problem, otherwise, it's a shame. Sorry. Um, so I do something else. Okay, this should have gone on the Google Earth and uh, and see what you can do in time and space. Um, but let me do. Oops. Let me do something else instead. Um, and um, we extract information for network models instead, for now, anyway. Um, so, uh, okay, so network models of violence. So what I'm extracting is basically, I use the, the, um, uh, the terminology that uh, network models use, that is node, edge, node, but basically, this is actor, action, actor, and then dates. Okay, so let me extract it. And you will see that, in fact, that's what it is, right? <clears throat> Authority on this date, violence against people, these are aggregated data. 
and uh, edge, uh, date edge, and then the node. So authority does violence against authority, authority does violence against the mob, etc. So now we run the network models. I use Gethy. There are other options there. I use Gethy because Gethy um, automatically it does uh, these dynamic network models, which are quite fascinating to look at. So this, let's use yearly data because we have 65 years anyway. It has computed the so-called adjacency matrix that network models need, and then it goes and... Uh, Okay, so this is a network model for the entire period. What do you see here if you don't know network models? Basically, um, this is a network model about violence only, not communication, not movement. Or um, So let's look at these two actors, Mob and Negro. That's the language of the newspaper of the time. The thickness of the line measured the number of violent events between those two actors, and the arrow means who is being violent to whom, okay? And uh, so these are all the actors available uh, from the newspapers involved in lynch. So it, it sort of reproduces the social relations of violence. When, before programming these dynamic network models, I thought that this relationship between Negro and white women was sort of an obsession, late obsession of Southern culture, that black men couldn't think about anything else than rape a white woman the moment they got out of bed, right? That it was a late 1800 obsession. Well, you will see what happened. I wanted to keep an eye on this relationship. Of this 500 lynching, only about 130 involved gender relations, violation of gender relations or outrages, as they were called, and these outrages could mean anything, and it's hard to tell sometimes. Could be uh, actual physical violence, a rape, or it could be whistling at a white woman, okay? And you would get lynched. Um, so we enabled the timeline. And then I am going to look at history through a very tiny slice of... Three year, we, where is it? Here, do you see it? So, I am going, so this thing is going to change as history moves through that, through that window of three years. Keep an eye on this relationship, and here we go. It appears that I was completely wrong about my assumption. That in fact, toward the end of the period, this line sometimes disappeared over the three-year period, and, uh, but that at the beginning, it was always there. So we can go back, and I can move a little bit slower than there, 
Oops. It's not easy to drag it, but you can see that that line is always there. That line of violence, and it's only, okay, here it disappears, disappears, or it's very thin. Right, so, um, that's, that's, yeah, that's an incredible, um, so it, those months of programming uh, paid off in the sense that it disproved my um, theory. I am, oops, uh, network, I'm just, just for the interest of time, I'm just going to pick it up from, I'm going to pick up the one on fascism. Um, not going to run the SQL query um, and just pick it up from GIF itself. Okay, so this is the model, uh, the network model of fascism, and I want to. You can see the amount of violence from the fascists. So the, all the actors on the right of history. So the the police, the court, the fascists, professional shopkeepers. Uh, landlords, employers, organization, all the, 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 the elite or the conservative or are on the right hand side and the left is on this side. The trade unions, the worker, uh, the... Oh, who are those people? Uh, huh? protesters. protesters, yeah, well done, thank you. Uh, the war affected, so this could be um, you know, uh, widows of war or uh, um, people who have come back from the war. Um, these are the, uh, no, where are the communists? Communists uh, are here, socialists, etc. Okay? And I wanted to focus on, so if there is historical validity to what historians call the red years and the black years, you will see it dramatically coming out as history moves. So we enable the timeline. And I will want you to focus on this actor, the police, and on that, that actor, the fascist. During the red years, as most uh, mobilizations, social movement research has shown, the police is the one that does most of the violence. During the black years, Despite the fact that there is a tremendous amount of uh, violence, the police is totally absent. They just let the fascists run them up. Because Giolitti thought, the prime minister thought, that he could get, you know, the army to take on the fascists. It was a ragtag army. But history didn't go that way, and we ended up with 20 years of fascism, right? So... So, look at this actor, and you will see it up until the end of 1920. Here comes 1921. The communists appear on the scene of history in 1921. The police disappears, and the fascists are beating up everybody on the left. So, we just try it again. The interesting actor is this actor, the communist. Gramsci founds, founded the 
Communist Party in January 1921 after the failure of the um, factory occupation movement of September 1920. So I go back. It's quite amazing. It's, um, yeah, tremendous amount of violence, but the, the police did not intervene compared to the amount of violence that the police did in the first part of the, um, the red years. Okay. Um, oh, dear. Uh, so we cannot go on, on Google Earth uh, let, let me let me show you something else, static. Uh, the Google Earth part is the dynamic part that you can see it moving in time, just like this, but with space. Oh, I just thought that I cannot show you another thing that, um, that also involves... Um, okay, mentioned... I'm going to use a static model. I'm going to just print out. Uh, I'm going to use uh, QGIS, which is a freeware GIS software, to map So we are using um, This doesn't go on the web, so it, we will get a map. So basically we are extracting where did the event happened, and um, it will map the events, and there they are, just to change the color, which you cannot do automatically, unfortunately. But now we can see it better. Okay, so that's the state of Georgia. Just for the ones who are not familiar, so the Atlantic Ocean is here, Florida is down here, and South Carolina is up north, and then Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee up here. Well, from taking a look at this map, it would seem that the whole of Georgia except this area, which is forest, uh, is full of lynching, right? Um, well, and the only difference with the Google Earth uh, part is that on Google Earth, you could click on any of these things and they would tell you who was lynched, at what time, the date when it was lynched, and it would have the time slide that if you move, all of these dots disappear in history. So you would see it as as history moves, and so that's... Um, and yet, for as clear as this map is, to do another type of map would take too long, uh, too, too many steps, but I want to show you what is called a heat map. You may have seen a heat map when you look at maybe Google Maps on uh, traffic. So, in red are uh, the... Um, 
the most lynch-prone counties, then orange, then yellow, and, uh, and then blue, right? Well, what it shows is, the heat map shows that across, diagonally across the state, uh, there are, there is a, a series of counties that are more lynch-prone than others. Well, that is the cotton belt. That is what cotton plantation, large-scale cotton plantation, where a very large number of blacks, maybe 80% uh, in the county, were involved. So, um, the heat map is uh, very clear. I show you another heat map of Italy. This heat map shows the relationship. It's constructed differently from the other one. It takes conflict in 1919-1920 by workers, and it overlays them with fascist violence. So the assumption is that the fascists would not have gone and beaten up somebody if they hadn't been, if working class, if workers had not been problematic in that area. Well, when I saw this map, I was really struck because it shows that there was uh, heat in Puglia, in Campania, in Lazio, in Tuscany, Emilia Romagna, and then uh, Lombardia. And uh, um, well, those are the areas that uh, historians have studied. Many British historians, for some reason, corner, uh, um, uh, you know, that they that they have studied uh, these particular regions. And the difference, so what is the difference given that the historians have studied? And the, the problem is that they have studied particular areas um, without having the, the tremendous amount of information available that, that I had. Um, well, okay, let me go back to my talk now. If, if we can connect, then we will, and if not, yeah? I'm, I'm able to connect onto the edge room. Oh, oh! Do you, do, you, do you mind do you, if you can log in to? Yeah, I didn't think that any of you from the LSE can log on with your. I'm from UCL, but my login ID works here. So. <laughs> oh, you found a cable. Wow. Yeah, if we can, if Fine. somewhere over here, plug it in. Oh. Thank you. 
the edgy room. Right. It works on my phone, so I'm sure it'll work here. Do you want to just try? Yeah, because there are three. Okay, do you want to try the Wi-Fi? Yeah. Can you have a password? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Oh, yes, yeah, and yeah. it works. No, here it doesn't even come up. See, that's what happens. On my machine, so I think we are... No, it's not. No. I don't know if maybe the wireless connection isn't... It's not working isn't for me. Yes. He told me that if the wireless connection is not very powerful, mm -hmm. it will not connect automatically. Yes, yeah. That's because it, it, it doesn't have enough power. It's okay. We can. We come. I mean, can you continue while I try and see if there's another way of getting on the internet? We tried one. You could try There's the like other. eight different. Yeah, there are many sockets. Yeah, except that she doesn't know which one it is. No, there are the seven. That is connected to the PC, you have to take it out and then to Do you want to have a look? <laughs> it's there. Oh, which one? It's this thing, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's the one that we tried. This one? Yeah. Did you try this one? No, you didn't try this one. I did try that one. Oh, you did? Yeah. That's the one that we plugged in? The first one? Oh, yeah. the second one. No, you tried the second one. No, it should be this one. That's this one. Yeah, I tried. See? Oh, because they've um, sticky tape to the, um, locked it in, apparently they lock them. Shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, they've locked it. So something, he did mention that that might happen. So, yeah. Yeah, so. So, it doesn't even ask me for my login. Huh? <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to do it. No. I'm sorry. It's not coming off here. Thank <laughs> you. 
So let's go back to the talk. In the past few weeks and uh, in, uh, uh, at the end of February, I gave a talk uh, with uh, Christianini. And then over the past uh, uh, few months, I have become increasingly depressed. So there, is, there are many answers to the question, what's Francis going to do with thousands of words in the computer? But what I realize is that computer scientists, and to, to some extent, those answers are at the cutting edge of what you can do with words, right? But computer scientists are pushing that cutting edge every day. Ever more problem, ever more software coming out, ever more data visualization uh, approaches. And uh, I thought... Wow, okay, so what? Am I going to chase computer scientists now forever? And then I thought, well, if they need millions of words in the computer, would they have been able to pick up what prompted me to focus on those 500 lynchings, on the 100 and some that had to do with gender relations, and on the possible ones that may have been love stories that went a wire in the context of Southern culture. And here is, a, here is the article, newspaper article, that pushed me to... Um, it's the exception, it's not the trend, it's the one article where the things are not visible, that the computer could not have picked up. What is not visible? 1918, Ike Reddy pays the penalty. Ike Moore, better known as Ike Ragnar, paid the penalty of rape at the hands of a mob Sunday night, etc., etc. Sunday night, about 12 o'clock, uh, Ike Moore forced an entrance into the residence of Mr. Taken Out, uh, who is a section hand on the railroad, etc., etc., and the assaulted Mrs. Taken Out, Mr. Such and Such being away. And I thought, and uh, the uh, coder sent me an email saying, Roberto, I got this uh, PDF file, the name of the woman, and, and her husband is taken out, so I don't know how to code the uh, required field of the name of the woman. I replied saying, don't worry about it, just put a question mark and put a comment. But he sent me the stuff. Two weeks later, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Hedgehog, the Fox, and the Magister, uh, 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 the, the Hedgehog, the Fox, and the Magister, 
Pox. I don't know whether you read this book by this uh, Harvard paleontologist, he's dead now, but an amazing book where he picks up on the antiquarian market this 1500 um, uh, book on science where some names have been taken out systematically throughout the book. And then the only name that they forget to uh, take out is Erasmus of Rotterdam, where he tells the story of the hedgehog and the fox, although he has taken out the name of Erasmus everywhere else but on that page. So uh, Stephen Jay Gould builds this incredible story about it. You know, it was the magister, the inquisitor, after the uh, counter-reformation, taking out every single Protestant name out of the book. So I go to a friend who is from Georgia, my IT person who is about 30 years old. I said, Tom, can you read this article? Tom reads the article and I said, what do you want? And I said, why did they take out the name of the woman? And Tom says, she is um, toast. She, it is such a shame that she needs to get out of town, she needs to move, she, it's a shame for herself, for her family. And I said, Tom, how do you know? Tom says, how do I know? I grew up in one such town, you know, why do you think I left? Um, what would the computer have said? Another example, the story of Jesse Ashton and Ralph Bixby. Um, it's, it's a moving story about this... Uh, comely uh, mulatto girl who falls in love with a white boy. The white boy falls in love with her. They want to get married. And uh, in the context of miscegenation prejudice, miscegenation mixing of races in all southern states that was illegal, um, they, nobody will marry them, despite the fact that this is not the south, it's in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. Um, so the girl tries to become white, one way or another. She takes ointment, she drinks milk, she, and in the end, she disfigures her face. The northern newspaper gave the story uh, and then end the story by saying she will recover, however, and Bixie says that he will marry her in spite of everything. The southern newspaper, the Macon Telegraph, not very far from Atlanta, says... These pathetic incidents prove once more, first of all, they don't tell us that the boy will marry the girl no matter what. To Southern culture, that was inconceivable. All miscegenation cases that appear in court for which we have uh, descriptions, the newspaper described the, the white man as uh, drunk and old and... and, and and the woman a tramp, and etc. right? The possibility that two normal individuals from two different races could fall in love was just inconceivable. But, so they don't tell us that the guy wants to marry her no matter what, but then they say these pathetic incidents prove once more not only uh, that nature will not be trifled with, but that the leper cannot change his spots, nor the Ethiopian his skin. What would computers that need millions of words in order to find patterns have found out of these incidents? So, my whole life actually, my whole research approach has always been looking at the outliers, looking at the exception that may prove the rule, like Joel Levine's book on um, um, 
uh, on the exception and the rule. But most importantly, in Ancestry.com, somebody, you know about Ancestry.com, somebody, this woman, uh, Delaware Dolores, posts in 2008, post, this came up, this was touching. So Ancestry.com posts this series of uh, newspaper articles, and she finds this newspaper article. And then she says, can anyone find if... Sorry. Can anyone find if they really did marry after January 1901? So this story moved this woman to the point, over a hundred years later, to the point that she posed this post on Ancestry.com. We do find this guy, we find the girl on the census record in 1900. After 1900, they did, in fact, disappear. They probably moved to Canada, you know, they moved to another state, it's very difficult. We know the doctors that they work for, both of them, and we find the doctor in 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930, then it disappears, probably died, right? We know the parents and who they are, but the point is that the computer could not have understood what Unamuno says, what it means to be human, right? And uh, when we were looking at the census record of this, with these two Chinese girls, 18 years old, they're freshmen, they look at census records of individuals involved in this lynching stuff, right? And they, we couldn't figure out the name of the profession, because that was handwritten, everything else is digitized. So I said to them, okay, hold on a second, let me go in the hall and see if there is somebody, an American out there who can read handwriting. So the, there is only one young woman, probably a senior, and I said to her, are you American? And she said, no, I'm not. What am I talking about? Yes, I'm American. <laughs> and we both laughed, and I said, can you read handwriting? She said, yeah. So, would you mind coming into my office, help us to understand? So she comes in, she, one of the two Chinese girls gives her the computer, and she says, oh, it says she's a dressmaker. So we find uh, Jessie Ashton, she's a dressmaker, and then the girl says, but this is very old, what is it? It's a, it's a census record from 1900. And she says, what is it for? So we tell her the story. And this woman is nearly in tears. She says, oh my God, she's from New York. She says, oh my God, what an incredible story. So, it, I was talking to Christiana the other day, and that's when I thought, that's what computers will probably not ever be able to do, right? To understand what is not there, and to be able to follow the exception in order to find the rule. And... Here, here I'm done. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor. Sorry about the technical. It's for nonetheless, it's so fantastic uh, demonstration of the properties of your, your work. Yeah. Okay. Um, <coughs> could you tell me, uh, with regard to the Italian... What's your name? Sorry. U
Yes. Right. Right. The the American newspapers is actually very interesting because the southern newspapers always always say he got his comeuppance. Right. He got what he deserved at least until 1910. Uh, northern newspapers also say here is another example of brutality from the gentlemanly South. So they always use irony. Uh, to describe an event. Um, the Italian newspaper is actually very interesting. So the fascist, uh, the fascist news, basically what you have is the direction of, they both admit that there was violence. It's like children who come in bloodied and they cannot claim that they didn't beat it, that they didn't have a fight, right? But what they will say, he did it or she did it, you know, so the arrow goes in a different direction for the two newspapers. But interestingly enough, because of the macho attitude of the fascists, they not always admit that they were beaten up. They always tell the story saying they started and we, had, we ended up just beating them because, you know, they didn't leave us alone. So that's the difference in the language between the Avanti and Popolo d'Italia. For the Avanti, on the other hand, because they were pacifists uh, in ideology, they always blame the fascists. And they always take it. You know, while the fascists sometimes take it, sometimes give it. Because of their macho attitude. But then how did you overcome those two different views to be able to point? There is really no way. I mean, you just tell the story in two different ways. It, it's in, in some ways. Um, you know, um, if, if, you, if you study media, uh, you know, think about uh, um, the uh, Glasgow University Media Group, you know, bad news, then the BBC reacts and they write uh, more bad news and BBC reacts even more sternly and then they write really bad news, right? Or, uh, uh, so bad news, uh, more bad news and really bad news. So if you study media, uh, you know that there is bias in the media and you would think that it's all socially constructed. Um, when, when you actually news, use newspaper as sources of social historical data, what I have been struck by is the fact that that representation of reality seems to correspond to what the historians have studied using completely different sources like police uh, archives. Or, uh, so that has been striking for me, for the fascist project. For the lynching project, what was at stake in... Sometimes I wonder if it was so shameful for a white woman to be raped by a black man, why would they print the name of this woman? 
in, in 30-40% of the cases we have the name of these women, right? Why did they do it? And one of the reasons was that newspaper wanted to give the community the idea we are here to protect our community and to the black community was this is a warning, you do this. And particularly in the case of rapes, they would leave a sign on the man's body hanging from the tree, they would pin uh, saying this is the penalty for rape, yours truly brother Dooley, for instance. And in fact, oddly enough, I, 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 that particular instance led me to a series of discoveries including the fact that Emory's mascot is linked to a lynching. You know, so that was, uh, Emory's mascot is called Dooley, and when I read this article, this is the penalty for rape, yours truly, brother Dooley. So again, the exception that then leads to something, right? The, the singular thing that then you follow through and you find something. There was another hand up, your name? My name is Artur Marolewski, and I wanted to ask you this kind of approach that, that, that you are doing could be used to predict future, and, uh, and uh, by studying the past uh, you know, frequencies of wells and actors and sequences, how could we apply it today to uh, Istanbul or, or Syria or somewhere else, and could we do something about the future? <coughs> or is there anything like this? Maybe oh, you, you, you can. I, I mean... Uh, you know, you have, um, it, with, with current data, probably uh, the work of Nello Cristianini can extract information on actor, action, actor, um, and uh, if you do want to do it by hand, yeah, you can get patterns and then through these patterns see how... Um, actors behave. So, you know that uh, gender relation, that violations of gender relations led to potential lynching. So, the, the ostensive reason for lynching was uh, the violation of gender norms, but on the other hand, only one-third of the lynchings are linked to that, but the dominant ideology was of of a violation of gender norms. Um, uh, most lynchings were due to murder, to uh, um, uh, arson, um, and not to violation of gender norms. But yes, you can use it to predict. Yeah. What's your name? Um, how statistically significant do you think that human element that you mentioned is? You know, like knowing about being sensitive to sort of context, which other computer can pick up on? Well, the computer, for instance, would, would definitely not be able to, be, to pick up the fact that the name of the woman has been taken out, right? The name of the woman is not there. The computer has no sense why one would pick up. I have been thinking, okay, so. Um, so, as human beings, we are just a bunch of uh, chemical products, right? And, uh, and uh, maybe even our ability to empathize is due to mirror neurons, in you know, other words, of, uh, 
uh, Friedberg, Engels, uh, for instance. And uh, so it is possible that uh, computer scientists one day, all of this probabilistic stuff, will become just another set of probabilities, just like we are a set of chemical combinations. Then we will become completely obsolete if they can figure out even why this woman in 208 post, whatever happened to them, why we should be touched by this story, or why the New York student to my ass, what does it say, would have been to the point of tears when she heard the story, because it is a moving story. The, the, um, that these stories of gender relations or violations of gender norms? Um, no, I mean that these kind of human, you know, these, these stories which the computer would overlook, I mean, are, they, are there enough of them to actually... Ah, oh, I, I get your point. Yeah, that's what uh, uh, Christianini would say. You know, I've got millions of... Uh, of words in the computer, I make uh, 20, 30 percent uh, error, who cares? I still pick up most of them. I mean, you know, that is unless you are the woman who was raped, allegedly, or the guy who was hanged, you know, then Giacomo? But another way... Giacomo Negro is a colleague of mine at the yes. University of Emory. Uh, so, but another way of asking the same question is if, if there are enough cases where you can detect a pattern where, I don't know, an actor expresses emotions or feelings toward another actor, uh, that can become part of your story. Right. I, yes, right, I... So am. essentially, I think what, what you showed, especially with the fascist case, is actions. Yeah. But, you know, th there are ways, I guess, of, of modeling... Uh, expressions of, of affective bonds in, right. in a similar way, and that can be built, I guess, maybe others. So, out of these 100 cases of uh, women who were outraged, right, and uh, maybe we have 30 or 40 names of these women, so we look them up on the census records, these two Chinese girls who don't even know where Georgia is because they're from Shanghai, but they are there at Emory, and they look up these women on the census record. And what have we found? What patterns have we found? Three or four patterns, actually. One is they never get married if they were not married. Two, they move out of town, just like Tom told me that they would have to. Some of them move out of state and change the state of birth. You know, so this family... Uh, the uh, Clem, Alice Clem, she's raped by this guy, John Cumming, the one who is yours truly, Brother Dooley, and they move, the whole family moves to South Carolina, and in the next census record, they state, all of them, that they were born in South Carolina in the town that they moved to. And Alice Clem even changes her birth certificate. How they did it, I don't know. But the event happened in 1904. There were no social security number. There were no computers. You could say anything to the um, census recorder, right? So that 
is an incredible story. Another story is this other family, she gets raped, moves out of town with the whole family, about 50 miles away, still in Georgia, and they change their name. The whole family changes their last name, changes their birth place. How do we know? That 20 years later, at the next census record, they go back to the original name, and the census recorder writes down previously, so they go from green to young, and so then young, previously green, and that's how you can find them, because otherwise you lose them, right? So, we, by those exceptions, we know what strategies some of these women took. We know that they never got married, most of them. We have not found any cases of divorce. I don't know why. Uh, to find women on the census record is very difficult, because if they get married, they change their name, and then you lose them. It's... Uh, unless the census recorder writes, nay, sometime, born, you know, then it's very difficult. But I think these exceptions, uh, in the case of lynching, these exceptions are fundamental, my feeling is, that some of these rapes were love stories, gone haywire. And I can tell a story I want to pick up, but I went to interview this black man about 96 years old, and I can tell you the story of what he said. Uh, there were other hands up. But, yeah. Thank you. Um, I sort of want to go back to your uh, distinction between story and plot. And I was wondering, because it's so important for you to bring in the form, you know, and, or let's say the quality and the quantity, how do you actually account for the plot? So, you know, if you take an action, you know, you, you have your actors, what they do, and, you know, various attributes, don't you use the form in any case? I mean, the fact that it's important how you say it, you know, yeah. and it's important to you, but with this technique, I mean, how can you get in the form and the quality, you know, and not just the quantity? Yeah. Um, what, what is important is to show the, um, to me, is the relation between social actors, time, space, etc., etc., uh, for which you need all, as much information as you can for all the events. To find out how southern newspapers tell the story and northern newspapers tell the story, you don't need a thousand newspaper articles. You, you read one and you know exactly. In the case of Ike Radney, they immediately say, he got his kamapi. He got what he deserved. After 1900... Even southern newspapers started to say, we don't condone this, but if you do this, this is what happens. And you can expect that the mob would be angry and they would do this, you know. Um, so, language is very, very important, but you probably don't need this. A handful of newspaper articles will tell you the difference. And then you can focus on those at a very qualitative level. Yeah, there is. You had your hand up before? Yeah, Martin? Yeah. I want to focus on the methodology. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot? Maybe we had this conversation before. Yeah. The question is are you softer? Because in your book, From Words and Numbers, you were very adamant that you're not interested in discourse, you're interested in the, in the actions. Right. But when you put up now the interest between the northern newspaper and the southern, you're clearly picking up discourse. Yes. 
So are you now setting up your software as a discourse analytic tool as well? Or are you kind of still wanting to go through to the facts, so to speak? Like, let's take the Christmas stock. You have four versions, and you just want to find out child born, donkey there, mother, father, full stop. Okay. So is, are you softening on that? Or <laughs> um. Uh, I, I always thought your software allows for both. In yes, in principle you can. You, yes, in principle you can do that. What I have become really fascinated by, particularly with the um, with the American newspapers of lynching, is the way they tell the story. And uh, so, if you do Q and A, uh, as I said about Christiana's uh, question, if you do Q and A, then you are interested in action, right? In like from words to numbers, but if but I have become more and more interested in uh, the language of the newspapers and the rhetoric. Um, um, so, and, and how they express uh, uh, language. Uh, so irony is used by northern newspapers all the time. That's the most uh, typical form. Um, the yeah, so I haven't softened up. Your software doesn't pick this up. You, you, no, you, you can, but you don't need a thousand newspaper articles to do this, and it would be a tremendous investment when two newspaper articles would tell you the same thing. Yeah. Your name? My name is Lee Jenner. Hi. And I'm just curious, do you know how many hours? Spent converting the reading the newspaper articles and capturing the data in the system. A lot, <laughs> particularly the one on fascism. The one a lot. Yeah. Could you give me, you know, some idea? Years of work um, so by teams of people. Um, well, uh, given that there are lots of young faces here, um, if you do a dissertation project. Um, you get 5,000 triplets, let's say, 5,000, 7,000 triplets, and you can code those within three or four months of work, right? If I think about when I... What, what has changed between my generation and the young faces I see in the audience is that the young faces today, normally young students today, normally feel that I, I am not going to do this by hand. You know, I download the tweeters, I, I streamline all of this stuff, and I analyze it, right? And I poke a button on the computer and we can do it. This was the approach that uh, people who did very quantitative work sometimes did, right? I poke a button on the computer, I get a regression, and I run a thousand of them until I get a good one. And that's what I present, right? Um, but I remember spending hours and hours during my graduate work with these two guys who were friends of mine in physics. They became very good physicists despite this, who would dictate to me the data on Italian, uh, on Italian strikes, you know, and all of the independent variables, the dependent variable, and, and we spent countless nights doing that. Today, we just don't do that anymore. It's just... Particularly when you work with words, you think, well, it's all available online. 
This stuff is available online, but it's not digitized, and so it cannot be analyzed. The stuff on fascism was all, when I was doing it, was all on microfilms. So it would have been impossible to, uh, to do. Yeah. So but the optical character recognition, you can't automatize that stuff? No, no, no not. The, we, we, we tried because uh, Cristianini wanted to use my data to sort of, as a benchmark for his uh, approach, but these are images, they cannot be converted. When they are PDF, they are, they are not that readable. They are barely readable to a human being and not to, yeah, in this particular case. I mean, you know, if you were to analyze the Turkish events today, then <coughs> this is all digitized and, and, and it's fine, then you have no problem. What we are doing now, actually, there is a, an undergraduate at the University of Padua who is um, uh, tacking on to PCAs an approach that would allow you to take an original uh, digitized text and you highlight part and it goes automatically into the grammar, just like Atlas TI or MaxQDA or this type of software. Martin? Yeah, you hand out. Oh, there were other people. Yeah, your name? Oh, sorry. Oh, there was. Thank you. Um, What's your name? I'm Wenshu. Uh-huh. Where are you from? I am from China. Obviously. Yes. I'm, I'm studying media here, and uh, when I'm trying to deal with media content, it often confuses me. Like, you cannot do, like, content analysis and discourse analysis at the same time, because it's like technically impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to. You have loads of like large scale data, and uh, well, this cost analysis needs like very detailed analysis, like hands on. Um, so I was thinking that uh, you uh, you have been dealing with uh, print media content, right? Yes. So far, and what do you think of uh, the new media content, uh, especially with the convergence, the like visual. Um, or do like media content? Can we do that? I mean, with the software, or, or it's like no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can if you want to, you know, because it uh, a media uh, an image will have people there doing something, right? And you convert it into a narrative of some kind. So you could. It's way too ambitious, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you could convert it if uh, if you wanted to. But then, probably, I would use other tools like semiotics. So, for instance, lynchings have led to, um, to some 100 photographs of lynchings that are extant. So, I am now analyzing these photographs using a combination of semiotics and, uh, um, you know, uh, rhetoric. Um, because those tools are more appropriate for images, you know, there are things that, uh, um, but they tell a story, uh, you know, particular images of uh, violence, they would tell a story, somebody doing something, <coughs> yeah, yes? So about uh, the future, like, uh, uh, is it impossible that you can just combine all this, well, the, the media context is increasingly convergent to the states. 
cannot say we're going to deal with the, the words and especially the old media and new media. Right. It's, it's no longer platform specific. Correct. Yeah. It's quite challenging in this way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but again, computer scientists are able to pick up you know, if you go through Heathrow and they ask you, uh, you know, to go through the new uh, electronic whatever, they recognize your face, right? They, uh, um, yeah, myself, I think that those can give you trends you know that this thing can give you trends and those trends are important just to know you know to know whether history looks like this like this like that or like that or you know have it gone down I mean th those trends are important or to know that um, only 30% of the lynching have to do with violation of gender norms and uh, about only 30% of those 30%, we get a sense that there was clear uh, physical, um, all the other ones are, he appeared in the room, he appeared in the street, and they got scared, they, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, so th those characteristics, to be able to quantify, tell you something about the event that it's under study. But then the exceptions give you the road to travel. I mean, that when I saw that black, uh, the name of the woman taken out, I mean, that led me to study the violation of gender relations. So that exception. When I saw yours truly, Brother Dooley, I started thinking, my God, the Emory mascot, his name is Dooley. Has this anything to do with this lynching? And then you start following that route until you do find out that it may have something to do with this nature, unfortunately. Yes? Hi. My Your name? David Sprungle. Yeah. Um, I just, it, it's sorry about this, but it's, it's not only um, what you're talking about, but it, it's, um, it's how things were in 1980. Um, they used to have um, um, kind of white only areas in London. And they used, how they did this was they used to put up signs saying no blacks, no gypsies, no dogs. And after about after about 1980, there was um, a, rock, a rock against racism, anti-Nazi league, um, uh, and, and the law was changed and things and that, that, those signs had to be taken down. But right. uh, basically, they were trying to. Uh, Put some kind of racist assertion into these, into these every meeting, basically, you know, and make it a white only ghetto. For example, I do remember one particularly. I uh, was in Portobello Road. I, I've never forgotten it actually. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, racism is not, you know, uh, the southern newspapers. As soon as they can hear something that went up. A case of racism up north, they are saying, you know, hey, look at the north who is always critical of us down here. Look at what they did. 
right? So, yeah, racism was not... And as I said, the story of uh, Jesse Ashton and Ralph Bixie is in northern New Jersey, you know, and yet they couldn't... And there were no miscegenation laws there. At least in the South, there were laws against uh, getting married across the racial line, but not in New Jersey. And yet the prejudice was such that they, these two kids, could not find anybody who would marry them. So where did they go? I, we don't know. I mean, we have searched wide, and, and um, they may have gone to Canada, in fact. Uh, just... Is there any, any one last question? Okay. Yeah. You name? First of all, uh, probably you're not aware, the last week at the Royal Academy of the uh, George Bellows exhibition, and there is a depiction of a lynch, of a lynching. Very rare in art, you know, in manual art. Right. Photography, there are, there are a lot. But this is the only case I've ever found of a depiction. Which... Uh, George what? Bellows at the Royal Academy, it's the last week. Okay. If you've got time. Right. Okay. Oh, and they have a uh, they have a drawing of a of a yeah, I must say uh, it's quite good quality in the sense that uh, it gives an, a, a clear idea that he was um, uh, uh, burnt. He was probably burnt alive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Second is uh, I was surprised of uh, the arrows when you when you show the violence of uh, the fascists before they came to power. It was directed to socialists. I thought that Mussolini came out of socialism. He did. Well, when did it happen, you know, the, the break from socialism? When Mussolini, at the end of 1919, but in, in the south, I don't know if it happened in the countryside or in countryside. the countryside. The countryside. countryside. It's the Exactly. It's the large uh, landowners. But what about the north? For example, there, there was a big uh, spot on, uh, on uh, Veneto, and uh, Veneto wasn't particularly yet at that time industrialized. It was more Lombard in Piedmont. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Emilia Romagna, again, wasn't particularly uh, uh, industrialized, and yet there was a lot of clashes there. Landlord. Landlord. Yeah, landlord. This is all countryside, country, country, country here. Lombardy was mostly industrial, but uh, yeah. But even but even the conflict the the conflict here was in the countryside with the landlord. Yeah, it was mostly a landlord thing. Fascism was born out of of. Yeah, yeah, but in Italy there, there has never been some, you know, a lot of latifondo because the, the country is small and uh, it has always been... Uh, yeah, it's only here. They, yeah, here exactly, they did have exactly. latifondo, yes. Uh, and in Sicily, yeah, there was some, uh, but the mafia was enough to... to uh, well, no, it happened, for example, already still in the uh, 1968 or 69, Avola. Sicily. Yes. So there were problems with the peasantry, right. say, you know, right. if you want to go yes. that. But in Sicily, yes, the, the mafia was always enough of a deterrent to, uh, in the hands of, it, it, there was a weapon in the hands of the large landlords. And I suggested to go to the Royal Academy. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. We'll take a talk now, so I think we should thank the professor for his space.